Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Whole Lawyer Project, which highlights Asian American attorneys and leaders throughout the nation and the human stories behind their success. I am your host, Jane Jong, and on behalf of the Asian American Bar Association of New York, I'm super happy to introduce you to my friend and someone I've admired very much over the years, Anant. Anant is an expert in antitrust and privacy law. He currently works as the global head of competition policy at Facebook in Washington, D.C., with extensive public and private sector experience. He has served on the top echelons of government, including working as counsel for ranking member Dianne Feinstein, as counsel to the Assistant Attorney General in the U.S. Department of Justice, as counsel to the House Judiciary Committee, as well as an attorney for the Federal Trade Commission. Anant has also worked in big law as an associate at Pepper Hamilton and Wild Gotchell, specializing in antitrust and litigation. He is a graduate of Yale and Harvard Law School, and he is a president of the Yale Club of D.C. On top of it all, he's a proud husband and dad to two beautiful babies. Anant, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I'm really happy to have the chance to catch up with you. Jane, thank you for having me. And congratulations to you as well, not only for your uh, personal successes, but also for launching this podcast. I'm thank you. super excited to be on. Thanks so much. There's so much I want to pick your brain on today. But just to give people a sense of your story behind your success, maybe we could start briefly touching up on your childhood. Sure. My story obviously starts with my parents who grew up in India. They were both doctors. My uh, father was a general physician. My mother was an OBGYN. They had what we would consider an arranged marriage. Before my father went off for his residency in England, he was engaged to my mother. And then after his residency, after he went back to India and they got married, they decided to move to the United States for a few years. This was when they, the United States opened up more opportunities for foreign professionals through the mm. H-1B visa program. They decided they were going to come to the United States for a few years, earn some money, and go back and live with his family in Mumbai. But as is so often the case, the money was good. The opportunities were here. One year stretched into two, three. My brother was born in Dallas. And then six years later, I was born in South Carolina, and they just ended up never moving back. Mm-hmm. We lived in a small rural town. And it was interesting. It was uh, a town that was pretty clearly divided between black and white. I grew up on what would be considered the white side of town. Mm -hmm. I was the only non-white kid in my kindergarten, in my uh, grade schools growing up. I I was the the local spelling bee champion. I went to the (laughs) national spelling bee and won several titles and went to the national spelling bee. Touting all stereotypes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I was also super good at math. That's Uh, awesome. The funny thing was for years later, uh, the the community would ask my mother, how is the speller? And she goes, he's in college now. It was my thing growing up. Then I went to Phillips Academy Andover, a boarding school Mm -hmm. in Massachusetts. And it just opened my eyes to just a whole new cultural perspective. It was easy in the South to grow up with prejudices against people of color, people from foreign countries, even as someone who recognized at some abstract level that I fall into that category too. But it's harder to hold on to those prejudices when you're living in the same dorms as these people, sitting down, having lunch with them, having dinner with them, playing sports with them, sitting next to them in class. And so it just opened my eyes to a whole new world. I've never gone back and lived in the South since then. I went to Andover, then, as you said, went to Yale, Harvard Law, and then moved back down in D.C. to Mm -hmm. start my legal practice. I see. So you mentioned you were the only 
non-white kid for a lot of your childhood. What was that experience like for you? I imagine when you get to Andover and Yale, it's a lot more diverse, as you say. Did you feel very other growing up or did you feel very integrated within your communities? I felt integrated within the white community just because it was such a, it was pretty homogeneous in that it was only black and white where I was Mm. growing up. You didn't have a whole lot of other ethnicities. Mm -hmm. And with my parents being professionals and light skinned and Mm -hmm. me being light skinned, it was pretty easy to actually not feel like the other. There was some disconnect. I see. Andover was interesting because you're right. It did expose me to a much more diverse community, but also a much more diverse Asian community. There were Mm -hmm. not many Asians that I knew outside of programs or events I went to outside of my own school and outside of South Carolina. So Mm -hmm. that was my first time hearing from others about Asian American issues and what it was like growing up in an Asian American community, like in San Francisco, mm-hmm. which was a very foreign concept to me. And I think it, there was that immediate sort of deep dive into the culture I had missed out on mm-hmm. growing up, which was, again, one of the, the, the many ways that my eyes were opened when I went to boarding school. Got it. Got it. So you get to Yale, you're a theology major. How do you get from theology to what you do now as an antitrust lawyer? No direct line. I was majoring in religion because I took an an ethics course that I found fascinating. And ultimately, I wrote my senior thesis on biomedical ethics because I thought I was going to medical school. Mm -hmm. It was only after I had taken the MCAT and applied to medical school and gotten into medical school that I realized that I actually didn't want to go to medical school. And so I took a couple of years off to work. And then what I thought I really wanted to do was become a lawyer. So I went to law school and I was, you know, just was very much set on becoming a corporate lawyer, making a lot of money. I didn't have any of the angst that people have in law school because what do I want to do with my life? Because I thought, oh, you know, I want to become a lawyer and make money. And Mm -hmm. then I had a job lined up with a firm on the West Coast, which disappeared after I graduated because of the market crash. And so all of a sudden I found myself having graduated from law school with no job lined up. And so then I came back to the East Coast, came back to DC where I had been living between college and law school. And through just sending out my resume and meeting with people, I was able to land a job at a federal enforcement agency, the FTC, Federal Trade Mm -hmm. Commission, Mm -hmm. despite having never taken an antitrust class in law school. And that's where I learned antitrust law. And it turns out I was not bad at it. And also the more that I did it, the more Mm -hmm. interesting it became to me. And to the point now where I've also happened to be in a field that is undergoing kind of a wholesale re-examination of whether it's fundamental tenets are still correct, Mm -hmm. which has made it an even more interesting time to be in there. But I would say Mm -hmm. for all of the young lawyers and the law students out there who are so worried about making that first correct step out of law school mm-hmm. or who don't have that job lined up and are worried that this is going to permanently jeopardize their careers. It doesn't work out perfectly for everybody. <laughs> I am a living example of that. I went to some networking event for antitrust lawyers where a very esteemed person in my profession was saying how, oh, she hasn't applied for a job in years. She went to this job and then her 
senior partner took uh, her with him to this job. And I was like, who are you? Like, how, does, <laughs> how does your life work like that? And we can get into racial dynamics a little bit later too, but it just yeah. doesn't work out that way for a lot of people. And I'm here to tell you yeah. that it, it's okay. Sometimes it doesn't and you can, you still manage and you still end up with a good life and a good career. So don't worry if yeah. that first step doesn't work out the exact way you thought it would. So you're basically saying you fell into antitrust by accident because your first choice job fell through. And now yep. like, many years <laughs> later, you're the head antitrust lawyer at Facebook. That is yeah. incredible. <laughs> so when you first start out in the FTC, at that point, did you still want to go into the private sector or were you happy at the FTC? I thought I would eventually go back into the private sector, but I never even applied for a public sector job when I was in law school. Because my whole approach was to become a corporate lawyer. Right. And of all the jobs I've had, I would say enforcement it has to be the best gig and the best combination of interesting work, mission, and quality of life. Enforcement is great. And then the FTC in particular, what I loved about it were just you had the time to just sit there with your team and develop case theories. You didn't have this, this time pressure I found later in the private sector of having to constantly bill your time and or generate business. It's just the mission. Like every day you wake up wanting to fight for the American public. And, and you, there's just no angst about it. There's no mm -hmm. sense of, am I doing the right thing with my life? Maybe there's a way you could be doing more. We all mm -hmm. have that sense, but you never feel like you're doing something bad mm -hmm. with your job. And I think that is just a great mission. I've seen now that I'm on the tech side, I'll, I will go to these events, where companies are presenting their mm -hmm. new technology. And if you're an engineer, it's exciting to work at these places, but the way they pitch it to the engineers is not, hey, here's like this cool new product you get to work on, but here is how this makes the world a better place. Like even when you're in the private sector, mm -hmm. people are looking for that satisfaction of making the world a better place. Mm -hmm. And you get that in the public sector. Got it. So you go from FTC to Wild. What was that transition like? So at, at the time, at FTC, we weren't bringing a lot of cases. This was during the Republican administration. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that I would get better training going to a big law firm because it's, it's still in the back of my mind. I was going to end up being a partner at a law firm. So I had a classmate who was in Wild's DC office. I went over there and I think there is something special as a young associate and almost any big law firm where even if it's grueling, even if the hours are long, even if the junior work isn't all that exciting, you're still bonding with this group of people your age who end mm -hmm. up being some of your closest friends throughout you know, your, your adult life. So um, as hard as it was, I love the people and the friends that I made there. We still get together for reunions. So yeah, I, I enjoyed it a lot, but, but the pace was obviously different, but the pay was also a lot better. So that was the trade-off. Mm -hmm. You know, for the time you lost, you did get paid for that time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then maybe we could talk a little bit about how you've, we, we've in between public and private sector for quite a bit thereafter. You mentioned the pace of life and the pay. How would you compare the various public sector experiences you've had among the different agencies that you've worked for? Of all the jobs I've had, enforcement, I think, is the best gig. You have that mission of trying to serve the American public. You are out there bringing the cases yourself, developing the policy yourself. And the nice thing about being on the enforcement side that no one really talks about is that you have total visibility into your schedule when you're going to drop mm -hmm. a motion or a, uh, <laughs> or a mm -hmm. case against somebody and which week is not going to work out for your yeah. plan. So that's nice. You don't get paid as much, but 
there's also not the same expectation that you're constantly checking your email at night, that you're available nonstop on the weekends that you do in the private sector. You know, when I was at my first big law job, my pro bono case was working, representing Guantanamo prisoners. Mm -hmm. And I think that opened my eyes to the kind of things, the kind of good things you can do as a lawyer that you can only do as a lawyer. Because I had never really... I hadn't done a clinic, hadn't done public interest law when I was in law school. Mm -hmm. But that's what drove me to explore an opportunity on the Hill as counsel to the House Judiciary Committee. And you know, the, the difference between being a private sector lawyer and a lawyer on the Hill is private sector lawyers tell you what the law is. Mm -hmm. Lawyers on the Hill think about what the law should be. And if you're more of the academic bent, public interest bent, then those types of careers are immensely satisfying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when you made these various transitions, whether it's working for the DOJ or working on Capitol Hill or working at a big law firm or serving nonprofits as outside counsel, how is it that you weaved effortlessly in between the public and the private sector? And how did you know at that time those opportunities were right for you? So here is my next tip for any of the junior lawyers listening to this podcast, which is mm -hmm. that even if life doesn't work out the way you think is going to, you can make it look like you had a plan in <laughs> by just like just drawing like these narratives that fit. So mm -hmm. House Judiciary Committee, I love the job. It was great. Mm -hmm. But then the Democrats lost control of the House my third year there. And so I had to look for another job. And so I was fortunate enough to land in private sector. But that was one where <laughs> I was just pushed out by right. circumstance. I think there are people with very clean resumes, which I do not have. But I also don't buy into this idea that you have to show this unswerving loyalty to mm -hmm. your employer. If you find a mm -hmm. job that you love and you love doing, you're going to be great at it. And you should stay with it for as long as you want. But also realize that if your job isn't fulfilling, if it's compromising your home life situation, mm -hmm. there are other jobs out there. It's, it's, a, it's a tough thing to say, but if you were to drop dead, how long would it take before they posted your job opening? As you think about how much loyalty you need to show to your employer, also think about how much loyalty your employer gives to you. What kind of mm -hmm. long-term commitments have they made to you? It, it's a job. They are trying to get work out of you. You're trying to do what's best for you. Don't pass up good opportunities or interesting opportunities that come your way mm -hmm. because you're afraid of offending one or two people that you work for. I think that's a great point. It keeps things in perspective. It is hard because we all care so much, especially Asian American lawyers. I think mm -hmm. we put ourselves in such a high standard. And I do think that sometimes it takes some conscious pause to think, does this job align with your values? Does this align with your lifestyle or the one that you want? Or does this align with your family? And I see my friends and personally for me also struggling with that because we almost feel if we can't give 200% to our jobs, we are failures. And it's weird. We think that way. We forget that we are working to live, not living to work. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. You know, I actually did have a friend who died on the job. He died at his firm. Uh, and oh, it was gosh. terrible and it was very sad for his family. But you also think about yourself in that situation, all the, the hours you put in, all the the nights you work late, take dinner at the mm -hmm. office, take the Uber home, work through the weekend, all those hours of your own life that you gave up for the job. Was it worth it? And for some people it is. For some people it, it does, but then if it comes at the expense 
of other things in your life, is that particular job worth it if that were, if everything were to end day after tomorrow? You're, you also remind me of this anecdote when I was at the House Judiciary Committee. Early on in my time there, and I, was, I used to write these great memos for House Judiciary. Like they still use some of those memos because they're so detailed <laughs> and so well footnoted. And I remember one time I was there late and I, was, I just wanted to get it perfect and get this graphic. And a more senior attorney popped in into my door and said, hey, remember, they don't pay you overtime here. And, I, and at the time, I wrote it off as, oh, these are public sector employees, just don't have that work ethic. But mm-hmm. he was making a larger point, which is that if you're not getting the full credit for what you're doing, there's a point beyond which if you're just trying to prove something to yourself, mm-hmm. use that time for your own life. Don't give it to an entity that's not going to give it back to you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And since then, how have you balanced this myth of work-life balance? Because you're obviously a hard worker and you're obviously very ambitious. But for me, it's refreshing to hear, even for you, you've had to consciously draw boundaries and recognize that ambition doesn't come at the expense of your family life and your free time and who you are as a whole person. So how do you balance that for yourself? So I think that there are, I might answer it two different ways. At an earlier stage, Mm-hmm. of my career, I think I would have said, you choose most jobs, you can't actually balance work or life, work and life. So you choose either the job that gives you immense work satisfaction at the expense of you know some of your own life, or you choose a job that allows you to do all these other things you want to do with your life, though it may not be the most fulfilling job. I've also come to realize once I broaden my perspective outside of big law, that there are jobs, whether it's enforcement, public interest, where you can have really interesting work that also has pretty reasonable hours. And I think it's teeing up a list of compensation, outside activities, family time, satisfaction of work, recognition, and just figuring out which combination of these are the most important to me and being willing to give some of the other ones. And- I'm guessing that calculation has changed for you over time. It's changed for me over time because mm-hmm. I've also gotten more efficient at working. I feel like <laughs> when you're young and single or dating, like you can uh, take the three hour lunch and then just like work late. Mm-hmm. But then when you have someone who's has to have dinner around 5.30, you, you really pare down all the distractions at work, all the other tabs you have open and you just get everything done mm-hmm. because of how much enjoyment you get when you can be home at 5.30. So you're right, because the priorities have changed, it has also changed the way I work. And I think mm-hmm. also just, as you get more senior in your career, things that might've taken you longer when you were younger might just take you less time. Now, that doesn't change the fact that you get hit with all kinds of new things mm-hmm. now because of the expectation that people are 24 seven available. But mm-hmm. I think you're less concerned about being known as like the best lawyer in the institution and you just you do your job but you realize that there are other people who are just as important and mm-hmm. your attention just as much now then as the facebook global head of competition policy what do you enjoy most about your current job and what would you wish you would change the most i think what i enjoy the most is that the particular company i work for is you know three out of every seven people on the planet use it so mm-hmm. the scale of problems you're dealing with is unlike any kind of policy I dealt with 
even on Capitol Hill, where you're trying to decide policy for the entire United States. So that's just mm-hmm. <laughs> that's just a few hundred million people that you're talking about there. But this is figuring out how you affect people's lives worldwide. Mm-hmm. Intellectually, parts of it are fascinating. If you like antitrust, you are at the cutting edge of antitrust, not just in the U.S., but worldwide. In terms of what I would change, look, the I think the tech industry is going under some deserved scrutiny for... Mm. Just it's is how it's grown and its practices over the past few years. It would it, it's tough to see everyone involved in it painted with this broad brush. Just criticism from the left and the right, and it's tough. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't worked at an institution that has been so roundly criticized. Mm-hmm. I've worked at institutions that people have disagreed with, DOJ, Congress, but not where people just critic have been critical of the existence of the institution itself. Mm. Mm. I know you joined about a year ago, which means you joined at the start of the pandemic, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'll speak more broadly just about work from home. Mm-hmm. Um, work from home has been interesting because, A, it's made you realize just how much work travel is bullshit. Like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, I, mm-hmm. I get so much done now. I can go upstairs for an hour and talk to the British Competition Markets Authority and then come down and have breakfast in my own house. Mm-hmm. Or I can get on the phone at 9.30 at night and talk to our team in Australia and New Zealand and then still come upstairs if my son wants me to sit with him th- during the night. So it's made you realize that a lot of the travel we assumed was part of the job, a lot of the being in the office that we assumed was part of the job, mm-hmm. Yes, not necessary. Definitely. But, but I saw an, a good critique because I feel like a lot of us who have children at home with us are feeling stretched pretty thin, which is that it's not work from home. It's that we're living at our office. I, I don't really have an end to my work day. Part of it's because my position is global, mm-hmm. but because I can just schedule things around when I want to be with my family. But as a result, the work just ebbs and flows. It doesn't end at any particular point of the day. Mm-hmm. I think that's been challenging. Mm-hmm. So for people who are in your shoes right now, who have a very demanding job, who have kids, who feel like their workday never ends, that like you said, you're not working from home, you're just living at work. Do you have any advice for them in terms of how do they manage burnout? What is it that you do? I've got to be honest, like the any solution I give depends upon a number of factors all coming together and clicking together perfectly. And that is my son's school being open and me being able to take him to the school, our nanny being able to come here and and do the nanny share for our younger son. Because Mm -hmm. the times when my son's school has shut down or my nanny had a COVID scare and all of a sudden my wife and I were both working from home Mm -hmm. and also doing childcare, everything falls apart. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it is mm-hmm. stressful. It is unmanageable. You are either not paying attention to the calls you're on or you're neglecting your children. I can't pretend that I figured it out. I, I can luck into having a system that allows me to try to get as much work done as I can between basically 8.30 and 4.30 every day and then again after 9.30 at night. Mm-hmm. But if any single component of that falls to the wayside, mm-hmm. the day is gone and we're just scrambling the entire time to keep up. What does your wife do? My wife is a prosecutor in the DOJ criminal division. So between the two of you guys, there's a lot going on with two kids as well. 
Oh God. And yeah. she has had to do court hearings from our upstairs room sometimes, feeding, breastfeeding. Oh feeding my gosh. Baby. So, yeah, yeah. She's a champion. She's had it, oh my yeah, gosh. She's had it even worse than I have. Yeah. So between your wife and you working from home and managing two kids and two full-time careers, what observations have you made about how people can work from home? I've picked up a couple of things and I think it's especially challenging for young attorneys or people who are starting out in their first job being work from home during the pandemic. Because I started this job basically during the pandemic, but Mm -hmm. I came in with a network and with kind of an established track record. I think that if you're just starting out right now under these conditions, you have to work harder to build your network and to make those connections that are so critical to advancing your own career, especially at a big law firm where what you need to advance is not just someone who's going to be your mentor, but someone who is going to feed you good work that allows you to shine and distinguish yourself. Mm -hmm. And those opportunities are easier to come by when you're on the same office. You can just grab someone for coffee you don't have that opportunity. You don't even know how to meet some of these people. Mm. And so I think the challenge with some of the young attorneys is you'll have to go out of your way to just schedule a Zoom call or a, or a time to introduce yourself to people you want to work with and make sure that you're getting the mentoring, that you're getting the work that will help advance your career. I think another thing is that from the perspective of the employee, when you're working from home, all the little perks that might make your job better and make you accept less from your job, go away. Right. Those perks could be length of your commute, particular office mates you like, a great location, a, a mm-hmm. good place to, a couple of good lunch spots around where your job is. If you're just working from home, it really does become about how much do you enjoy this particular job? Because if you don't enjoy your job or not getting everything out of it you want, you can just swap your current laptop out for, for a different laptop. <laughs> that is true. I never thought about so, it that way. Yeah. So I think, I think that it does empower employees to consider, is this the job that I want? Yeah. Do you observe any common mistakes among the young attorneys that you work with or some common mistakes that maybe perhaps you made while you were coming up the ranks that you wished you had done differently? Sure. Let me answer that with some tips that I, offer to particularly law students, but also first and second years who are just starting out, write, network, pitch. Mm. If you're a law student or a young attorney, it is hard to distinguish yourself from a lot of your generalist peers, but there are a lot of opportunities to write. If you're a law student, it could be the online blog version of any of your journals. If you are a um, young associate, it could be any number of um, publications in your practice area or your own law firm's client alerts. When you can write something and have something attached to your name, it's a way to distinguish yourself. And it's an easy thing to pick up. And especially writing for these journal blogs, you can just take Mm. a topic that interests you and demonstrate that you have some real subject matter knowledge of it. Networking particularly if you're a law student, this should be the easiest thing. Just go out and meet as many of your law student classmates as you can. We used to have this thing at HLS Bar Review. I'm sure every law school has something like that, where on a Thursday, you pick a different bar and you all meet up there. These classmates of yours are not going to be how you get your first job out of law school, but they may be the 
how you get your second or third or fourth job out of law school. And all you have to do is just go be social, have a drink. But making these connections now will help you down the road as you compete for increasingly harder to get jobs. And mm. the and networking also applies to when you're a young associate. Look, you are going to be in a pool of other associates who are all pretty good. What's going to distinguish you is finding a partner to work for who's going to give you good work that allows you to shine. And that involves not just waiting for assignments to come your way, but finding partners who have matters you want to work on or who you've heard are really good to work for, which is sometimes even better than the subject matter because mm. working for a good partner do wonders for your career. And mm. instead of just, I just sat and waited for projects to come to me, but you can go and try to direct your own career by seeking out the people you want to work with, seeking out the work you want. And I would, I would highly advise associates in this competitive environment to look for that. And lastly, and this is advice I give to summer associates, mm -hmm. which is when you have a chance encounter with a senior person at the firm, always be able to describe what you're working on in a couple of sentences that make it sound like what you're talking about and that you sound excited about it. Because mm -hmm. the way offers come about is at the end of the summer, the recruiting person sends around an email to all the partners and says, hey, if you have any thoughts on any of these candidates, let us know. And sometimes you, know, you may only meet a partner for a few minutes. That's your only interaction with that person all mm -hmm. summer. Mm -hmm. And if you can just leave them with the impression that, hey, this person actually understands what they're talking about. They seem pretty excited about it. That makes a huge impression on them. And yeah, I would advise being able to do that, whether it's at a law firm, whether it's a, a summer clerkship on the Hill, always be able to describe what you're doing in a couple of sentences and sound really jazzed about it. Got it. But there's some types of advice that would be better suited for certain types of groups. And, and for context here, I'm trying to speak to the fact that for Asian American attorneys in particular, there are a lot of stereotypes, whether at a big law firm or just really in general, that maybe Asian Americans are not seen as the loudest people in the room or the most charismatic leaders or the most outspoken people. I think when I talk to a lot of Asian American colleagues or friends, we do have a shared frustration that we're just seen as people who work really hard and keep their head down, but don't really make a lot of noise. And the advice that you offer to young associates, they are all in line with making some noise and kind of making your presence known <laughs> and speaking up for yourself. And how do you advise people who might not naturally be the ones who are the loudest in the room, who might not be as naturally good at networking as some as a very extroverted person or as someone who is used to putting themselves out there. And I ask because I do think there is a certain level of perception against Asian Americans. And I'm wondering if you have any advice on how we can combat these stereotypes, how we can also be authentic to our own selves in a way and succeed in a way that does shine a light on our strengths and provide some kind of microphone for Asian American leaders to progress in their respective organizations? I think that's a great question, Jane. I think that there are cultural elements to why our generation of Asian Americans are like that. I think from the sense of always obey and respect your elders, mm -hmm. the idea of speaking up and challenging something 
that you disagree with was frowned upon. You're not supposed to challenge your elders. So there's so that's a component of it. There's also the types of achievement that our parents pushed us towards were kind of objective achievements of that if you just work really hard, you get your grades, then you know you will get valedictorian. So there are objective ways that you win or, or you succeed. And if you just right. do that part, you don't have to do the other stuff. I think for a lot of high achieving Asian Americans, we never learn how to hustle or how to self-promote. Mm-hmm. It is not, and it's not something you can just pick up. At the same time, you don't have to be a total extrovert to do it. I think my advice to law students and young associates is that if networking feels like work, you're probably doing it wrong. Mm. What I think of as networking is, like I said, for the law students, is going to these bar reviews and just meeting your classmates. For young associates, it can be cold reach outs on LinkedIn to people whose careers you find interesting, who have maybe some connection to you through common law school or common college. And it's okay to get rejected. If you get rejected nine times out of 10, that's fine. You just need a couple of people to talk to you. And what I've experienced and been guilty of is that older attorneys love to talk about themselves and their fascinating careers (laughs) and all the great choices they made in their lives. And if you just say, hey, I would love to chat with you for 15 minutes, most of them are happy to make the time. And then they will end up feeling like, hey, maybe let me know if I can help you out in some way. Mm. And so it doesn't have to be this huge public relations effort as much as just deciding to go out and talk to someone whom you, whom you have maybe have no connection to and just seeing if they'll take 15, 20 minutes out of their day to just chat with you about their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. I love the point that you made about just if you, even if you get rejected nine times out of 10, that's still one yes that you get. And then sometimes it mm-hmm. literally only takes one. And I do think we lose sight of that. Yeah. When you look back on your career again, what has been the biggest surprise for you? I know we mentioned a couple of things. Like one, you mentioned your career path hasn't always been in a linear progression, but you've just been able to like naturally pivot based on your circumstances. Is there a particular moment where you felt maybe you just didn't really know what to do? Or was it always constant that you had this like internal compass of these were my interests, these are my values, and this thing looks interesting to me? So I guess a couple of ways to answer that. I think one of the most pleasant surprises has been how much I enjoy this field of law that I'm in Mm -hmm. and how interesting it has gotten for me over time and how much interest the, the public at large has taken into this particular field of law. In terms of figuring out what the next steps are, it's hard. And I think this was one of the unexpected surprises in my career is that the more senior you get, it's still hard to get that next job because you're you're becoming increasingly well qualified for an increasingly smaller number of jobs. And I have found that my successive jobs have been rewarding and even more rewarding in different ways, but they've been just as hard to, to get. And so the, the same things you do about treating everyone nicely and networking and, and just trying to do a good job where you are, continue to apply it later on in life. But, but it can, yeah, it can be hard when what makes you happy, what you're good at, but you don't know what kind of 
job will pay you to do that. Yeah. So in that sense, what is next for you? I know you're about to start paternity leave and that's an exciting time in your life. And when you look in the next year or two, what are some current goals you have for yourself and your career? So looking forward to spending some time with my family. When I come back, we have our hands full with a lot of antitrust work at Facebook in this space at large. And it's not just a matter of doing the work for the company, but it's a matter of being part of the antitrust community and thinking through what is the right way forward in this field, what changes are necessary. So I think there's going to be a lot of interesting intellectual work that remains to be done. And I'm hoping that I'll be able to contribute in some meaningful way to it. That sounds awesome. Anand, thank you so much for all your time here. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This is so much fun. And congratulations again. I wish you all the success with this podcast. Thank you so much.